Welcome, congregation of First Baptist Church, China Grove. We're going to start tonight our Bible study on Hebrews, but before we do, I want to go to the Lord in prayer and pray for all of our sick, and we have many, uh, some in the hospital and different ones, and let's just lift all those in need within our congregation up. Lord, we come to you in prayer and uh, for our people, for the brethren of our church, who are in need of prayer right now, the many sick, uh, many are battling illnesses, battling disease, and Lord, also for those who are battling other problems and issues. We lift them up, Lord, and we also give thanks tonight for the new pastor, uh, for him coming. We look forward to his uh, advent here, and Lord, that you will bless in every way, the ministry of the new pastor. And Lord, be with the congregation and help them uh, to be supportive and do the work of God here in this place. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is uh, written basically to the church at Jerusalem. Around the year 69 A.D., we, we know and we will explain why we know that's true. It, it could not have been written past that time because after 70 A.D., there was no church in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, there was no Jerusalem because Titus destroyed it and everybody there. And so as we look at the book, we understand it was written. There, there's some very peculiar things about the book. It is an epistle. A letter. And all the epistles we have, with the exception of this one, note very pointedly at the very beginning who is the author. This one does not, and we'll talk about that too. You open a, a, a scroll, an epistle like this, and so the first thing they, they said from Paul or from Peter, from James, etc. It announced in the very beginning, first verse or two, who the epistle was from. This does not. Let's look, and we're going to read just the first three verses tonight as we get started. And we are going, to, I'm going to give you kind of an overview of the book. And I think going into the book, and I'm going to try, if I can do it, to lead you through the entire book of Hebrews in one month. We've got, we've got I think, five Wednesdays to do it in. Maybe we can get it done. I hope we can. Is that right? Five Wednesdays? Something like that? Got five Sundays. Okay, hopefully we have five Wednesdays. So we're going to try to get the book in this month if we can. Okay, four. Okay. Well, I don't know if we'll do it in four. So I may have to stay over in the, in the new pastors. I'm just kidding. Verse one. God, who at sundry times and divers manners spake in times past and do the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We can stop right there and really spend an hour talking about those three verses. Because so much is said there. It talks about how God spoke in the Old Testament, how God spoke in the New Testament, 
and who the person of Christ is and what he has done. That's a lot. And it's all of these three verses. You will find in the book of Hebrews that it is a very power-packed book in the information that it get, gives to you. Um, Hebrews has many themes, but one dominant theme, and that is found in the book, and it is to exhort and warn believers in the faith. It is given as an exhortation, basically. The writer says at the end, an exhortation, but also a warning. An exhortation can be a warning. Uh, an exhortation is an encouragement, or it could be a warning, uh, exhorting you if the building's on fire, I can say I'm exhorting you to leave. I'm encouraging you to leave the building because it's on fire. Obviously, that's a type of encouragement. He's encouraging them to return also to their faith. And this is in Hebrews 3. But as we begin to study, there are many things in the book full of darkness. And we might even, uh, as people have read the book, they told me, the only book in the New Testament other than Revelation that befuddles me is Hebrews. Uh, it is very akin in many ways to Revelation. And the understanding of Revelation and Hebrews is both tied up in the understanding of Jewish customs. And as you understand those, you will, you're better able to understand both books. So, uh, I would disagree with that and say, no, no, no book... Uh, is perilous and bad to study. It's just we have to dig it out. It's meant to encourage and help us by means of God's Holy Spirit to understand. Um, in the pages, it speaks in chapter 5 of those who have fallen behind in the faith. Do people fall behind in the faith? Do they get out of fellowship? Yes. And in this, we'll see believers who have not matured. And what happens to believers who fall behind? What happens to believers who backslide? What happens to believers who lapse into kind of a spiritual incapacity? What happens is, we're going to find it, it tells us in the book, is they go backwards. In other words, you don't, and this is something for us to understand, you don't maintain, get to a level of spirituality and say, I'm going no further. If you do that, Rather than maintain that, you will actually disintegrate what you have. And your spiritual maturity will actually be less than you have right now. And he tells them that. At a time they ought to be teachers, they have need that one teaches them again the principles of the first oracles of God. So he clearly tells us that, yes, we, when we go backwards or, main, or just level out, that we actually are going backwards. And losing things that we once knew. In other words, we are losing that grace of enlightenment that God has given to us. It is my belief that Paul is the writer, and I'll explain that later on before you jump on me. Or disagree. You don't have to agree. Uh, matter of fact, that's not a, a premise to understanding Hebrews, that you agree with who wrote the book. Let's just say, for matter of fact, I believe Paul wrote the book. It's easier for me. I'll explain why Paul wrote I think. Paul wrote the book. You can agree or disagree. You don't have to. I believe in 2 Peter 3.16, though, when Peter speaks of Paul's epistles, and some things many are hard to be understood, I think it's a direct reference to this book, which would have been written by that time. So, 
at least for that case, a case can be made for it. Uh, and we might ask ourselves, why is a book like Hebrews necessary? Well, I answer that by saying it's imperative. It's not only necessary, but the big book of Hebrews is imperative. It's important. It's like Matthew. Matthew bridges that Old and New Testament. Well, Hebrews bridges the Old and New Covenants. You see, it takes the covenants and puts them together. It brings together the Old Testament doctrine, and the New Testament doctrine stands side by side and weaves it together. It explains why we had some of the things in the Old Testament. I think in many ways, without the book of Hebrews, we would be really lost in our New Testament and Old Testament knowledge. It bridges both the historical and doctrinal testaments together. Uh, I've always said if I were putting books in the Bible according to the way I would like them, I would have put Matthew, Hebrews. That might be a little hard for people to take, being Matthew is the gospel, but uh, I kind of see Hebrews as the <clears throat> Pauline continuation of the gospel of Matthew. Uh, it might be said Hebrews takes up where Matthew ends. Matthew ends with the Great Commission being given. Hebrews shares the results of the commission and the fate of Israel and the early church. The one of the main ideas stated here in verse 1 is God is now, or verse 2, God is now speaking to us by his Son. As in the gospel of the parable in Matthew 21, where he gives the parable about a man sending a people to speak to the servants, and he sent them, and they killed them. And finally, lastly, the master sends his son. He says, my own son, they will not kill, but they killed him. And so that is a direct story directing you that God sent the prophets, and they killed them. And then finally, God sent his only son, Jesus, and they killed him as well. And it's a direct uh Connection to this right here. God has sent his prophets and others. Lastly, he sent his son. And through the Holy Spirit, by the way, Jesus is still dynamically and spiritually speaking to the church. He speaks through his word, through his prayer, and through the Holy Spirit, but all that is directly through Jesus. Uh, in the book, there are many Old Testament quotes. Uh, but some of the richest gems in the New Testament are from this book. I've studied the book for over 40 years, and uh, what I'm going to share with you are some of the highlights of what I have understood. As far as the themes go and the teachings, uh, not only is it an exhortation to serve Christ and be faithful to Him, not only does it point to Christ as the voice and the head of the church, but the book intends to show how Jesus Christ is superior in every way to um, the Old Testament. And so the superiority of the Son is definitely shown. And you might look in Hebrews 10.10, where it talks about the sacrifice of Jesus. It says, his sacrifice, we are, we are sanctified by the offering of Jesus once for all. Once. 
Well, what about the Old Testament sacrifices? Well, they had to sacrifice at least once a year for the sins of the people. And then in between, as individually as you know your own sin and wanted to sacrifice. So they sacrificed year-round, one, the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people annually. So obviously the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was superior to the Old Covenant in every way. And I'm not going to go into all of the verses today about why that's true, but it is true. And you say, why is that necessary? We, we believe Jesus is superior to the Old Testament laws. But, it, but who is the audience here? Who is Paul, I believe, who is the author speaking to here? He's speaking to Hebrews. He's speaking to the church at Jerusalem. And the church at Jerusalem was predominantly, if not all, Jewish. They knew the Jewish ceremony. They knew the Jewish laws. Their roots were Jewish. And so he, was, he is speaking to them. He is convinced. He has to convince the audience. Because here's what's going on in a capsule. The church at Jerusalem is being persecuted. It's being persecuted two ways. One, the Romans don't want it because they see it as a cult of the Jews, a radical cult of the Jews. So the Romans are against it. They're also being persecuted by their own countrymen who hate the Christian Jews. And they treat them as if they're dead. They, they persecute them. I think stoned some of them. They uh, Remember, uh, Stephen was stoned in Jerusalem. Uh, so it is a very rough time for these Jewish Christians. Now some, <clears throat> in order to placate the persecution, have went back and began to worship in the old ways. They're still going to church, but they're going back and sacrificing and worshiping in the temple following the old ceremonies. Some have forsaken altogether. And some have remained probably faithful. So you have several different groups. And this is the status of the church. Now, the status of the whole thing is this. They are one year away from absolute destruction. It's like the sword of Damocles is over their heads. In one year, Titus will come. He will destroy the temple. He will wipe out the Jerusalem church and Jerusalem. There will be no more Jerusalem church. There will be no more Jerusalem temple. The sacrifices will never be offered again. I believe that's a judgment of God. And the city of Jerusalem is sacked and burned. And that's what is about to happen. Now God, through the Holy Spirit, is speaking to Paul to warn these believers, I believe. As you look at the pages, you'll almost say it's as if he knew what was about to happen. It does seem that way. But Paul knew where they were headed. And he is trying to warn them. So this is who the book is directed to. And so this is why he wants to show them that Christ is so much greater 
That's why he begins the book in verse 2. God is speaking today, not through the law and the ceremony, but through Christ and the Holy Spirit. You see, that's what he is trying to get across. And he says those sacrifices, if they were superior to Christ, would not have needed to have been duplicated, but they were every year. They were simply a temporal measure, an atonement. Matter of fact, they're called an atonement. Now, what is an atonement? An atonement is a covering for sin. It's as if this paper was an atonement and my hand were sin. The paper covers it, but it does not do away with the sin. Jesus, when he died, did more than that. He got underneath and took the sin out. So Jesus deals with the sin and takes it out once for all. That's what it says in Hebrews 10.10. 10. Once for all. We stand, therefore, forgiven by a holy God, exonerated and justified as scriptures declare. Our mind is clear of sin. Yes, we still have the sin nature, and we deal with it, but it no longer has dominance over us. We of all people know what true freedom is all about. We know what spiritual freedom is. We are spiritually free, and each day we live in the knowledge of Christ. How blessed are we as believers in Christ. We rejoice in our salvation continually and daily, as it says in Psalm 9:14. Now, something very unusual about the book, Christ is presented in his, all three of his offices. You know, Christ held three offices. He is prophet. He was a prophet. Priest. And he is a priest conveyed here. And king. We know he's king of kings. Amen? He was a prophet. Now, he was the son of God deity. But he, was all, he also took on the offices of prophet, priest, and king. All three offices. By the way, the only one in the history of Israel to hold all three offices prophet, priest, and king. David was a king, but not a prophet. David was a king, but not a priest. Okay? Aaron, priest, but not a king, not a prophet. Jeremiah, prophet, but not a, not a king, nor a priest. So you see, Jesus held all three offices, makes him a very unique individual. And he is presented in this book as all three. Most scholars believe it was written about A.D. 69. Uh, some put it at A.D. 90, which makes no sense at all. I won't even discuss that because it makes, it's nonsensical to write a book to people that aren't there. Uh, it would have been ludicrous to have written a book after Jerusalem had been destroyed. So we won't even entertain that. I, it's, it's superfluous. Um, and the Christians now at Jerusalem are a new generation, and they're experiencing this tremendous... Tremendous persecution. And what should they do? Well, when they're assailed, and Paul gives them help in this book in chapter 4, verse 16, and I'll turn there and read. He says this, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says, Come to your high priest in the heavenlies, Jesus Christ. Let us come boldly to that throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and help in time of need. That's what they 
needed to have done. Yet they did not do that. They did not come to that throne of grace in order to achieve help when they needed it. And that's what they should have done. Now, Paul highlights their failures in chapter 3. And what he's done, because these are Hebrews again, what he did is he turned back to the Old Testament and he tried to show them, look, the people of God, the Israelites, the Jewish people, had failed God before. And in chapter 3, he talks about the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea. Remember, they were entering the Promised Land. They had been delivered from Egypt. And boy, that's a picture of these Jewish Christians at Jerusalem. They've been delivered from Egypt. We've been delivered, amen? We've been saved out of Egypt. And now we're here at Kadesh Barnea. But they didn't want to go in. And therefore they turned and wandered in the wilderness. And Paul is kind of telling them, you're wandering in the wilderness like those children. You need to go back and go into the promised land. And he also tells them to stand fast and firm in their faith. And later in the book, in order to show them that, in order to exhibit their stand of faithfulness, what does he do in chapter 11? He gives us a a chapter we call in the Bible, the Hall of Faith. Abel, Moses, Abraham. So on. All the great heroes of the faith listed in one chapter. Why? This is who you need to look to. Those who succeeded. Those who succeeded. And he reminds them, because of this, we have this great cloud of witnesses, the prophets, the Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all there become a great cloud of witnesses, chapter 12, watching us. It's meant, this epistle is meant as a final warning of God's impending judgment on both Jerusalem and the church. The temple stood as a temptation to the Jews, and God was going to forever wipe it out and remove it. And that's why we come to the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, and it talks about Israel being without an ephod, a high priest, Without a sacrifice, without an ephod, and without a king. And by the way, if you look at Israel today, what are the three things missing from Israel? A sacrifice, a priest, and a king. There you go. And so God took it away. And yet, it's going to come back to them. But we're not going to get into that. That's chasing rabbits. But Paul uses language here. Warning in the... Some of the language is kind of what you might yell if the house is on fire. You know, you might say, get out! You know, why? Because their house is about to be on fire. Paul senses that. And it's a warning. And the Holy Spirit must have spoke deep in his heart. And the narrative. And some of his comes across across as rudeness almost. Crudeness and rudeness. Uh, for example, in chapter 3, he warns me, he said, God was displeased with those people. He did not go into Kadesh Barnea. He says, their carcasses fell in the wilderness. That's a horrible thing to say. Their carcasses fell dead in the wilderness. But, you know, he's, uh, as somebody said, this is not a Sunday school picnic. This is the real down work of God here. And fear is mentioned six times in Judgment 3. And the writer does not hold back. 
Uh, in our witness, sometimes we might tone down the presentation to offend, but let me tell you something. If we could see hell, I wonder if we might do that, might not do that. We might be more like Paul. We might, if we saw it a bit clearer, we might be a little more demonstrative, if that's the word, demonstrative. In the style of Hebrews, it's written in the classical Greek. This is why many people say Paul didn't write it, okay? Well, let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, first of all, it was written in classical Greek. That's probably what Luke would have recorded it in had Paul given it to him as a secretary, would he not? Yes. Paul, uh, Luke was a very educated man, a doctor. He probably would have recorded it in the classical Greek. If Paul had used Luke as a secretary. Uh, so let's think about that for a moment. Does that rule out Paul? No, I don't think so. Uh, not only that, did Paul know classical Greek? Yes. Paul was an extremely educated man. Uh, if you read Acts 17, he even knew about the writings of the Greek philosophers. He quotes a Greek philosopher there in chapter 17. So Paul was a very learned man, extremely learned, and would have known classical Greek himself. So, uh, you know, to use that as a reason for him not being the author, I think, is uh, a very... Uh, it's actually written in Hellenistic prose style, and differs from other writings in its style. And it begins, uh, most ancient manuscripts call it to the Hebrews. Connecting uh, Jewish culture to their faith in Christ is a compelling point in this book, and it's well done. It weaves again the two testaments together, uh, and we understand it better. Chapter 13, we understand things from the Jewish perspective and not from a Gentile perspective. In other words, when Hebrews was first written, if I'm a Greek believer in Corinth, and I'm reading the book of Hebrews, I'm going to have a little bit of problem understanding it. Do you get me? Because the canon is not complete. They have some writings. Not all, they don't understand hardly the New Testament doctrine, much less to start looking at the Old Testament. So a Corinthian... Reading Hebrews in the, first, in the, in the before, prior to 100 A.D. would have had much trouble reading the book and understanding it. Today, we don't. Today, we can look back with full knowledge of the full canon and knowing history and knowing Jewish customs and all that we know. And we can look back at the book of Hebrews and we understand it perfectly. Let me give you an example. And one that always touches my heart. Chapter 13 of the book. Where he talks about Jesus. Let us go to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is outside the gate. Now, what did that mean? What does that mean? What did that mean to a, a, a Gentile believer in Corinth? Nothing. What did it mean to a Hebrew believer in Jerusalem? Everything. You see, to go outside the gate meant to be something unclean. The p things that were cast outside the gate were unclean. The animals, the unclean lepers. Uh, Jesus, when he was crucified, was taken where? To Golgotha. He was not crucified in the city. Why? Because a dead body was considered unclean. And so Jesus had to go outside the gate. He had to go where the cursed things and where all the things that were considered unclean went. And it says, bearing his reproach. Let us go forth unto him outside the gate, bearing his reproach. And he was encouraging 
those Jewish believers to say, look, Jesus went outside the gate. Jesus, who was perfect, sinless, became an accursed thing for us. He bore all that grief and he bore all that derision and all that. Let's go to him. Let's be willing to go outside the gate. If it means that people hate us, dislike us, whatever, let's go to him. And that's what he was saying. And, and to a Jewish believer, when they read that, that was like a slap in the face almost to remind them of who they're following and what he endured and how they were unwilling to endure the suffering they were going through and the, what they were going through and the rejection. But yet, who was Jesus? Somebody who, what? Shameful, rejected, became unclean, rejected of his people, put up on a cross for a criminal. Boy, you can't get any more despised than that. And yet, they're thinking about what they're going through. And what Paul was trying to say is, look what Jesus went through. That's why he said in chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen? We began with Jesus. Jesus is there at the starting line, just like a track. And remember, Paul's of that race, and he's talking in the context of that, I'm talking about a race again. It's fun, isn't it funny that the starting point of a race on a track is also the ending point? Jesus is the author, the beginner, and the finisher of our faith. He's there when we started. He is the one we turn to, and we started our walk with him. And when we end up, who do we end up with? Jesus. We end our faith the same way we began. At that starting point. And so he is using things like that that only probably later, much later on, hundreds of years later, did people begin to understand. So this book was quite a mystery to some people, especially Gentiles, I'm sure, in the first century. They probably had trouble with the book, much like Revelation. But now we understand so much more today from the Holy Spirit speaking. And I think we're probably going to stop there this week. I've hopefully kind of whet your appetite. Uh, we, I will say we'll take up with the thing of Paul being the author. I'll explain to you why I think Paul was. And we'll take up there next time. Thank you for tuning in on our Bible study. hope you'll stay with us. This should be a very meaningful Bible study for all of us. And we thank you. Let's end in prayer the way we began. Lord, we pray tonight, we pray for our leaders, for our country, for our church, for our families. And Lord, we look to you, the author and finisher of our faith, for all that you despise, and we follow you, Lord. We follow you outside the gate, we follow you everywhere you go. Though it might be despised, the old rugged cross is something not despised by us, but beloved. And Lord, we love you, and we acknowledge that tonight. And Lord, forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Thank you for this time and study. In Jesus' name, amen.